This episode is a part of a special series devoted to a new edited book titled Social and Emotional Learning in Physical Education, Applications in School and Community Settings. Published by Jones and Bartlett Learning in cooperation with Shape America, the book is edited by Dr. Paul Wright of Northern Illinois University and Dr. Kevin Richards of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. It's available for fall 2021 instruction. The text will integrate well into physical education teacher education coursework, and it's a great resource for teachers looking to increase the focus on social and emotional learning in their classes. This special series is sponsored by the Physical Activity and Life Skills Group in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at Northern Illinois University. Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm joined today by Dr. Missy Parker from the University of Limerick, as well as Dr. Kevin Patton from Cal State University, Chico. Uh, We're going to be discussing their co-author chapter from the uh, upcoming SEL book titled Connecting Skill Themes and social emotional learning in elementary physical education. So, Missy and Kevin, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Risto. Um, I think I can speak for both Kevin and myself, as well as Cassandra Iannucci and Jessica Mangione, our two co-authors on this chapter, to say we're really delighted to be here today and to share some of our thoughts with you. We would also really, really, really be remiss if we did not acknowledge George Graham. Shirley Holt-Hale and Tina Hall, who are co-authors on Children Moving, a foundational text about skill themes. So again, thank you for inviting us, and um, it should be a fun day. Yeah, and uh, we actually used that book in uh, in my elementary methods class, so thank you for that. Um, And so I, I guess to start... Uh, you started the chapter off by talking uh, about skill themes. Obviously, you both are authors on this uh, on this book with George Graham, and we do have a previous podcast that we did like a really quick fifteen minute overview of it in episode eighty six. But can you give an overview of what the model is and what does it look like in uh, primary school um, physical education? You're really going to ask me to do this in an overview, short fashion. Okay, here goes. Um, I'm going to start by saying that skill themes is both uh, pedagogy and content. Uh, It's about our developmental approach to elementary PE. Uh, Instructional and curricular decisions are made with respect to children's cognitive and social abilities in combination with fundamental movement skill principles. In the previous podcast, and you said it was number 86, mm-hmm. that Kevin Richards did, he, gave, he, he really gave a great uh, overview of the content. Um, I was, uh, I'm going to use it with some of my own classes, because he might do it better than I do. Uh, but to recap that, the content of skill themes is initially fundamental psychomotor movements. Um, that serve as a foundation for physical activity over a lifetime. Um, they can be categorized as locomotor, non-manipulative, or manipulative. Um, there's such things as running, throwing, catching, jumping, balancing. Uh, they could be considered building blocks for movement. We chose to call them still themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, these fundamental movements uh, are going to enhance described by movement concepts. 
uh, that serve to modify skill themes and make them more or less complex, um, expanding somebody's range of movement, enhancing it, making it richer. Um, and the movement concepts we, we use have aspects of space effort relationships. So one way to think about it is that skill themes are verbs and movement concepts, such as space effort relationships, are adverbs or adjectives that describe those, those verbs. Um, so basic to understanding skill themes, though, is not just to know the content, but to understand how the aspects of the content then interact with each other. Uh, so that interaction is what allows ultimately for progression. Uh, one cannot teach a movement concept without teaching a skill theme, or you can't teach a skill theme really without using a movement concept. So in another, in other words, if I want to teach levels, I have to do something at levels, either throw and catch at levels or balance at different levels. Or if I'm going to teach throwing, automatically I might throw for different, with different forces or to different distances. So the two interact with each other all the way around. And that's where if you use skill themes, you know it, uh, the infamous wheel comes in. And the wheel is really allows for a visual representation of skill themes and movement concepts and how they might interact. And so the wheel has two movable parts, two wheels that rotate in both directions. Uh, on the inside wheel are all the skill themes, running, jumping, throwing, catching. And on the outside wheel are all the movement concepts along with all their subconcepts. And so a teacher could literally spin the wheel like a game at county fair and mix and match combinations of skill themes and movement concepts. Uh, for example, one spin might land on throwing and levels, and therefore a teacher would teach throwing and catching at different levels. Spin it again, it could land on balancing uh, at different levels. And so I'm going to do balancing at different levels. I really did know a teacher in, a, in an elementary school in Colorado who had the wheel like that posted on the notice board in her, in her gym. And she would let kids sometimes spin the wheel, and that's what we're going to do today. And it was, it was kind of a neat, uh, neat way to do it. But pedagogically or from an instructional perspective, think of it as learning to read or write. Initially, a teacher would put together simple phrases for children to learn, two words, a noun and a verb, and then these would gradually be expanded to sentences, and then to paragraphs, and then to stories, and then to books, and then maybe even children make up their own. Uh, all the while, this is helping a child be a self-directed learner with regard to developing their movement capacities. So, and I'll, I'll give another plug for the book because I, I noticed that you made an e-wheel that I use in, in my synchronous <laughs> online class, and I was wondering because the original book comes with the wheel and that you can actually, that you talked about that you can turn. But uh, I was wondering how I'm gonna demonstrate that in, a, in an online class. And I realized that there's an e-wheel now. So um, another thing, the, I'm gonna go off script here because I, I wanted to ask this question and I, and I think this might be a loaded question. So if it is, I'll, I'll delete this podcast part. But 
you started talking about putting nouns and verbs together and, and this idea of making this analogy of teaching movement as teaching writing or reading. So my, my bells and whistles started going off with this idea of physical literacy. And you, you knew that you're shaking your head because you're like, oh, he's going to go to this physical literacy question. So do you feel like the way that you describe skill themes is about physical literacy in some way or another? Um, or because you talked about words, sentences, paragraphs, than creating your own stories. To me, there's so much, you never use the word literacy, and I don't know if you didn't use it on purpose because we don't want to go to that physical literacy world, but do you care to comment or either one of you comment on that? I'll, I'll say one thing, the interesting, our analogy to learning to read or write was in children moving since the first edition. So mm -hmm. it actually, that analogy happened long before the physical literacy movement ever took hold. So in that sense, it was not intended to relate to the, the physical literacy movement ideas, concepts that have been going on for the last 10, 15 years mm -hmm. or so. Um, it was just a great way to describe the progressive building and learning of movement skills so that they became rich in the form of games, dance, gymnastics, whatever we wanted. But you started at the bottom and you built up rather than starting with the game and, 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 and building down. So you kind of built up like you would learn to read or write. Um, have we gone with the physical literacy piece? Um, we have, if you look at the last edition of Children Moving, we certainly address physical literacy in it uh, early on. Um, I think it may be beyond what we're talking about today, but the notion of my vision of physical literacy, and I'm taking this as personally, I wouldn't say for any of my co-authors, uh, if it's just they would agree with it or not, is that it's a very broad-based, a very rich piece. It's not just about learning fundamental movement skills, which you could equate children moving with or skill themes with, but it is about this holistic nature of learning, which I think we will come to. You may ask about that a bit later, but it's a notion of the richness uh, possible through movement and with movement that a child can gain. Uh, it's not just about vote learning. Uh, and I think that richness, that, that um, depth to what movement might mean to people is a real notion of physical literacy and that physical literacy then children moving would address that. We've addressed it some, it's a possibility, but I think the notion of teaching to the whole child really gets at it as well. Yeah. And, and I'll segue this too, because you talked about the progression. So. Can you explain in the skill themes, you talk about a spiral progression and can, uh, can you explain how does it distinguish the skill themes approach? Okay. Uh, Risto, I'm going to tackle that one. Yeah. And I just want to echo uh, what, what Missy said and just uh, uh, we're excited about the opportunity to, to share here today. Uh, but I'll tackle the, uh, the progression spiral and really share that it's um, the development of skill theme from simple to more complex is really designed uh, in, in the chapter and in the book to be read from the bottom to the top. 
But it's really important to note that it's not grade-oriented. Instead, the spiral uh, is really organized according to generic levels, which your listeners are probably familiar with, of skill proficiency, and that includes pre-control, control, utilization, and proficiency rather than grade levels. Uh, and each of these levels identifies uh, kids' developmental levels with respect to a given skill theme. So, for example, at the pre-control level, a child's movement is erratic and unpredictable. Uh, this often means that the ball may be controlling the child rather than uh, the other way around. At the control level, it's really characterized by less haphazard uh, movements, which are that, and a child's uh, movements require real intense concentration uh, as the movements uh, are really not automatic yet. Next is the utilization level, and their movements are increasingly automatic, uh, and they're able to use these movements in a variety of ways, and they're actually able to start to combine movements into sequences. And then lastly, uh, we know that proficiency is really characterized by auto, um, automatic and effortless movements, and at this point, uh, our kids are able to um, utilize movement in a variety of changing environments. It's really important to note there's really no time allocation assigned to any given task. The progression is instead, uh, it suggests possible combinations of how skill themes and movement concepts may be combined, revisited, and developed. And similarly, the chapter that we provided, uh, we, we, we give some progressions for teaching SEL or social emotional learning skills. And again, we try to present them going from simple to complex. So for example, if I'm teaching um, relationship skills, which is one of those, uh, the five main SEL components, I'm first gonna have to focus on communication and communicating clearly as well as listening skills before I can move on to more complex skills like uh, conflict uh, resolution, which is a much more advanced uh, topic. And so really depending on the characteristics of your class, uh, we suggest that you start lower down in the progression spiral and you work your way up all the way uh, changing and adapting the sequences based on your teaching situation. And, and similar to what uh, the analogy that Missy provided, the simple phrases, we move on to sentences and then paragraphs and books, we view uh, the skill theme approach in very much the same way. So, hey. uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I can add to that for a second. It may be the child in me. But I keep, I always think of the spiral, you know, the children's toys, the slinky, those spirally things mm -hmm. that, that move along. And then later they made multicolored slinkies. So the colors repeated themselves, uh, maybe appeared different as the thing moved. That's what I look at as a skill thing, as, as a spiral for skill things. It lets us revisit the different kinds of combination. And it's always, it's flexible, it's moving, and it goes up and down. So that's my my next analogy is something slinky in the spiral. You do have a good knack for some good uh, analogies, though. It's, <laughs> it's very visual, and I and I think that that's a that's a good way to explain it, especially the multicolored one, as it's changing. Because one of the things that I try to yeah. teach our students is, no, it's not that you're teaching this one time. You're going to continue revisiting exactly. it, so it's okay yeah. if you don't go super in depth. And I think that yeah, you know, exactly. slinky is a spiral, and it when it changes colors and revisits, I think that's a really good analogy actually. So um, yeah. I'm not sure if that's in the book yet. Is it in the book yet? No, I don't know if the slinky's in the book or not. Uh, you got to put that in the next edition. You started, to, you started to ask something. But I no, I, I was going to ask because we, we did talk about SEL and that's why we're here. So can you talk about 
why do skill themes and SEL go so hand in hand and why does it work at the primary level? I'm going to give it a go. Um, well, I will give it a go. But I think before we back up, just in case people didn't hear, I know that Paul and Kevin talked about this in a previous podcast, but just in case people didn't didn't hear that, um, SEL skills or social-emotional learning skills now have, have certainly become, uh, for lack of a better word, a hot topic. Uh, but they are everywhere. They're in state standards everywhere. And the most common accepted form of those appears to be the CASEL format for social-emotional learning. And so CASEL defined five big SEL skills. Um, Self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. So I think if we keep those notions in mind, as we go through this, it's important. And I do want to say that um, while SEL may appear to be new, um, it may not completely be new. Uh, CASEL has certainly broadened our ideas about uh, social-emotional learning. But in PE, we've always kind of looked at it most often through Hellison, Don Hellison's work with teaching personal and social responsibility. So if we keep some of those ideas in mind, that this is uh, an expansion of that, a broadening of that to a wider audience, I think it, 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 gives, it lets us stand on the shoulders of those who came before mm -hmm. us. At, I would say for both SEM skill things, they both involve pedagogy, the instruction and assessment, as well as content. And... Um, I think from a skill themes perspective, and Kevin and I talked a lot about this recently, from a skill themes perspective, the pedagogy aspect of it is often or ignored, or for us it was assumed, uh, it was assumed that people picked up and realized that the pedagogy for teaching skill themes was fundamentally different than what many of us were used to, but we never built on that a whole lot. And that pedagogy feeds into SEL. One of the things that we didn't mention in our first points was that we consider, or skill teams can be considered, a child-centered approach to physical education. Um, Kathy Armour would say that it puts the child at the center of the pedagogical encounter. Uh, and in that center, it is a whole child. It's not just the physical child, it's the uh, psychomotor, it's the cognitive, the affective child, the child that embraces SEL learning, uh, in which they learn to make decisions about who they are as a learner and who they are as a person. So we are teaching to the whole child. With that, if we're teaching to the whole child, we believe that SEL concepts, just like psychomotor skills, They've got to be taught. Their development has to be purposeful. Um, we can't assume that kids come to us with those skills. We wish they did. Can't assume it. Just like we can't assume a child comes to first grade being able to read, we can't assume they come being able to uh, make responsible decisions. Um, Hal Lawson has said that what children learn is as much from how we teach as what we teach, and that we really believe that 
the two have to go hand in hand with each other. Um, maybe one of the unspoken things about skill teams is that instruction is designed to be individual and small group. Children progress at their own rate. Uh, in this environment, children practice psychomotor skills and they can practice SEL skills at the same time. For example, a child might be practicing throwing and catching even to the wall. And, but they can also practice with that setting appropriate goals for themselves, like how far they're away from the wall, how many throws they catches they want to do without missing. Uh, and these concepts are all developed in an environment that would seek student voice. Uh, and help students make decisions about learning and managerial skills that purposely then teach to larger SEL goals like self-management and decision-making. So we see them as just so interrelated that we almost assumed they were happening. And what this book chapter is forced us to do is to develop that certainly more purposefully and mo more overtly in, in, mm -hmm. in how we describe skill things. So what about the classroom environment? Can you, uh, can you explain what makes a classroom environment conducive to uh, utilizing SEL? I'll, I'll tackle that one. And I think I'm going to uh, reiterate a little bit about what Missy talked about. But I think we can all really agree on the importance of creating and maintaining a learning environment. And we really think that uh, the skill teams approach is a robust way uh, with a lot of potential to teach SEL because just like Missy said, it fundamentally focuses on developing a student-centered learning environment. And I think it's important to talk about uh, and provide some examples about what that really looks like, right? Uh, what we envision is an environment where the focus is really shifted from the teacher to the student, right? With the end goal of developing students who are autonomous, they're self-directed, they're independent, and what that means is shifting the responsibility of the learning uh, from the teacher as the sole provider of information uh, in, in providing that to students. And so uh, envision that we're walking into a, a classroom or, or rather a gymnasium. And, and what would that look like? It would look like every child is engaged. Uh, frequently, this means that all of them have their own uh, piece of equipment to maximize practice attempts. Uh, and in terms of SEL, this requires a lot of self-management on the behalf of students. It also uh, would look like kids helping each other. That might be uh, in terms of providing feedback. Uh, and in SEL, that would really uh, focus on the relationship building aspect. Also, uh, this may look a little bit different than a typical uh, a gymnasium in that kids are developing their own games rather than exclusively participating in teacher uh, directed games. And it also might mean that they're creating their own gymnastics uh, or dance routines. And lastly, and this is a, a, a more abstract uh, one to get your head around, is that multiple responses to the same task that a teacher provides, they're not only acceptable, but they're encouraged, right? And this really gets to this idea in SAL of responsible decision making. And so ultimately in this environment, it means that students have input on both the managerial as well as the instructional decisions that are made. And, and though the teacher provides structure to the environment, it's the students who have choice, right? There's a certain amount of open-endedness to the environment. 
And this can be a little scary, especially for prospective or new teachers uh, in that um, it's an environment where the response might not be the same for every student, depending on their uh, developmental level and their experience level. And so really circling, circling back to your original question, this environment is one where SEL concepts are developed uh, in a manner to seek student voice. And you keep hearing us bring up this notion of student voice, and it really helps students to make decisions about learning and managerial uh, situations that are purposefully taught, as Missy mentioned, uh, and they're part of these larger SEL goals, for example, self-management and decision-making. So you alluded to this earlier because you talked about student-centeredness and you talked about, you started talking about student choice, but, and I, and I totally concur with you and, and beginning teachers, we talk to them about, you have to give student choice, you have to give this, and they have a tough time finding that, how to let go, but also keep a control of the classroom for them to get to the learning objectives. But can you expand a little bit more about the role of student choice in creating this conducive environment uh, in the classroom for SEL? Oh, sure. One, I think the notion of student choice and voice are hugely important. And I also think that choice and voice are different. Uh, let me see if I can explain that a bit. Um, we made the statement earlier that SEL in our development, our teaching as well as skill things are developed in a context or environment that seeks student voice. Uh, Cassandra and Nietzsche and I have been playing around with this concept of student voice. And in our con conversations, have led us to a place where we talk about student voice in it as a mechanism uh, closely linked with student agency, which requires students to have meaningful input into, in this case, their learning experience. Uh, and you may ask, okay, Missy, where are you going with this in student agency? But if you look at the definition of student agency, it's really the end product of social emotional learning. A student agency is a student's capacity to set goals and to deal, to act responsibly and to uh, sh shape their actions rather than being shaped. So age, student agency is the end product of social emotional learning. Student voice feeds into that. So ultimately students find their voice by using it. And if we want a learning environment that supports student agency and their voices, we have to progressively scaffold those opportunities for students so that they learn to do that. Again, we can't just say, use your voice and hope it happens. We have to build those uh, opportunities. One way to do that, and probably the easiest and most fundamental way, is to begin with student choice. It is a strategy that teachers can use to support students to learn to use their voice. And so that's where choice comes in there. It starts to build. It's one of the first strategies. Choice invites students to check in with their wants and needs, with themselves. Uh, it allows them to begin to 
disengage from the dominant discourse and from the louder voices that are being used in, in a class. And for this to happen, teachers have to then uh, create a space, a space for students to use those voices, uh, to make those decisions. Um, so choice is a scaffold that lets students use their voice with respect to social emotional learning. Uh, it's a necessary element of voice, but not a sufficient one. Uh, and certainly it's a mechanism to teach SEL and for students to learn SEL. If we think of choice and voice on a continuum, choice at one end, voice at the other, and then choice can start with very um, easy choices. Uh, choices between one or two things, the two option choices, they're, they're closed choices. And those, and that's where I would see beginning teachers, okay, you can do A or B, or you can use this piece of equipment or this piece of equipment. So you limited the choices for both students and teachers, because teachers have a hard time, as you said, giving choice because they think they're losing control. So mm -hmm. we, we build students' capacity to use their voice while at the same time, building teacher capacity to give choice and voice. Uh, and then gradually those choices can be opened up. Maybe I can start to choose my partners, or maybe I can start to choose a small group, or maybe I can start to choose from different aspects of a lesson. Maybe that I can start to co-create and self-design games. So it opens it up to choice opens up to the use of voice, which ultimately then results in the use of social and emotional learning. That was probably a longer response than we wanted, but I think it's important to understand that choice is a mechanism. It's not an end in and of itself. No, and I appreciate you explaining that because when you first said that choice and voice are, are different, I realized that I do use them interchangeably a lot. And I think that it's-, it's I think a lot of us do. Yeah, and I think it's important when we talk about how do we increase student voice it might not be through student choice. It could be through it, but it doesn't always have to be. Um, so I, I exactly. like that. I like that clarification. And I think choice really does lead to voice. And I think for teachers and for me, this notion of closed choices leading to more open choices mm -hmm. may be a way that we can explain it to our pre-service teachers. Just give them a little choice today. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give them a big choice. Yeah. Don't go say, oh, design your own game and hope it's all going to work. Because yeah. when that happens, then disaster happens and teachers pull away from giving choice mm -hmm. rather than in, embrace it. Yeah, you can't go in and your student teaching experience and say, what would you like to do today? <laughs> They're going to take advantage of you instead of here are oh, two choices. Yeah. So, um, it, yeah. it was interesting in the in this chapter, you created a lot of lessons and practical tools. There was a lot of practical examples and full lesson plans that you uh, explain or, or demonstrate in here. So what kind of went into the creation of this and why was it important for you to actually put lesson plans in this chapter instead of just kind of talking about how to do the lesson plan? Uh, on, and on this, so we want to give a huge shout out to uh, our co-authors here, Cassandra and Jessica, because they were instrumental in creating these lesson plans. Uh, but just uh, going on the conversation that we've been having, uh, the abstract nature of this, people need to see what this looks like in action. Um, and the reality is that um, 
for teacher candidates, as you mentioned, this idea of going off the script, right, which is a requirement of skill themes, is a challenging thing. So in one way, we are providing at least a vision of uh, what this could look like uh, in action. And the idea that um, teachers really have to adapt skill themes to meet the ability uh, of their students. So just in the same way that we know as teacher educators that modeling is really a powerful practice, um, we wanted to help future teachers as well as um, practicing teacher uh, to really provide an example to lean on. And uh, interestingly, uh, in our current form of the children moving text that we alluded to earlier, uh, where skill themes is really detailed, we assumed that this notion of seeing SEL in action came through. Uh, and in fact, in working on this chapter, Missy and I have talked a lot about this is something that we need to um, include in future versions uh, to really give readers an idea uh, and some detailed examples and logical intersections between SEL and skill themes. I think it's also important to note that we know that teachers' um, practice is significantly informed by their own experience, right? So if, and if, therefore, if they haven't had an experience, that being uh, experiencing skill themes and that being being taught, purposefully taught, as Missy uh, mentioned before, these idea of SEL, it may be hard for them to uh, make it come alive, right? So that's why we wanted to provide some tested examples. Uh, and these are lessons, the two lessons that are included in the chapter are lessons that have been real, uh, used with real students. Uh, they've been tested in, a, in a, a teacher education capacity and in schools. And so we know that these are some tried and true lessons and real practical examples that um, we hope are, are useful uh, to, to the readers. And, and in the uh, chapter, you also wrote that skill themes are about content. You talked about that being what is taught and pedagogy, how it's taught. Do you feel that this is the same for social emotional learning? Oh, so much. It's always when we were, when we were in previous days, when we deal with teaching personal social responsibility, it's the same way we have to make it. In, in my behavioral terms, we have to make it operational for kids. Uh, if skill themes provides um, a conceptual conceptualization of psychomotor content and instructional strategies, uh, uh, that's great. We think the environment lends itself to teaching SEL, but we can't just assume that because that environment lends itself to SEL, that SEL is going to happen our SEL learning is going to happen, uh, kind of like, oh, I'm going to learn sportspersonship by playing sport. Well, we know the end result of that. Um, it most often doesn't happen uh, or the opposite happens. Uh, so therefore, ch children are really going to learn SEL skills. They must be purposely taught, and purposeful teaching does not equate to telling, which is what we've most often done. We said, be responsible. Make a good decision. And you know, I know a lot of kids who would really be responsible if they knew how to be responsible or they would make good decisions if they knew how to make good decisions. But they need practice in doing it. They really need practice. And so when we wrote this chapter, our first step in this whole progressive teaching thing or making uh the, the content kind of 
come alive, become pedagogically alive, was defining SEL concepts in kid-friendly terms. We actually went to Castle to look for it to begin with and couldn't find it even there. What what does setting a goal mean in kid-friendly terms? So we went to kids, basically Kevin's children, and, uh, and asked, what does this mean? And so we got responses for them. For example, setting a goal meant keep going and keep trying. Kids can understand that. Uh, Self-discipline meant when your will is stronger than the temptation. Hmm. Those are their words, not our words. Uh, Cooperation and listening well, oh, that would mean don't try to control everything. So it made it then things that we could teach, we could use their language to teach uh, this. And after that, uh, so those must be overt, not covert, as Dan Gould would say. They must be taught, not hope to be caught. So then once we get the language, once we get the ideas, they must be taught through structured progressions and practiced multiple, multiple times. None of us learned to throw in one lesson with one pass. At least I didn't. Uh, and you're certainly not going to learn to be self-directed in a one-shot deal. So I need to have opportunities to be self-directed within a lesson that gradually gets more complex. For example, I might first make a decision about how far away from the wall I want to be to school. I might increase that decision to make how far uh, or can I practice on my I'm back up for a second so if I'm going to be self-directed I might want to practice uh, a task and just do it while the teacher's not looking mm-hmm. then I might want to make a decision about what I practice when I come into to PE for the first five minutes I make that on my own teacher doesn't tell me I have to be practicing something that may gradually lead to even deciding what I wanted to learn so that that is progressively scaffold throughout a lesson. And then kids need feedback about the decisions they make. So if I made a decision to practice dribbling in one with my non-dominant hand at the beginning of the lesson and the teacher is wandering around and she might ask me, what am I supposed to be practicing? Oh, especially if she sees me shooting hoops. Oh, I'm supposed to be practicing dribbling. Okay. I can practice, not get punished for making a mistake. You just get prompted to get back on task and practice what I said in a self-directed manner I was going to do. So it lets us that not being punished is huge. Because initially you want to say, oh, they can't make a good decision. We'll take it away from them. Uh, And then like psychomotor skills, SEL skills need to be, they've got to be assessed. I'm talking assessment for learning so that it allows children to understand what they have learned and and there's teachers to understand what kids have learned. So again, I'm going to say start small, start with small, start smart, small choices, small steps, and let it build from there. 
Yeah. And I think there are some great things in there. Like you, you said, taught, not hope to be caught, like starting <laughs> smart, starting small. Uh, the, the line that I pulled aside was about teaching doesn't equate to telling. And I think a lot of times we get used to that in that command style of I'm telling you what's happening and there's no interaction. There's no check. There's no opportunity to respond by the student. Um, and the example that you use at the very end of the book of not being punished for mistakes. So, um, just as you wouldn't punish a student for stepping with the wrong foot when they're throwing overhand, you yeah. wouldn't punish a student when they talk out of turn, when they're learning to listen and, uh, what, like when you're giving instruction, listen quietly before you're talking or taking turns. Those are things that they're learning. Those are skills that they're learning and for you to punish them for that when they're learning that skill is not the not the right way to go about it. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the classic examples for me is when I was teaching, uh, both Kevin and I was teaching in at Northern Colorado, in Green, Colorado, we worked in a number of primary schools there. And in one school, you know, the teachers got all the kids gathered around them at the beginning of lesson, explaining what's going on, etc. At the back of this situation, there are two kids talking the whole time. And I'm like, why don't you say something to those kids? They're talking. They're disrupting. The teacher came to me later, and I asked him. I said, why? He says, because one of them is translating to the other. One doesn't speak English. Hmm. And But your our first reaction is, you know, is is to come down on kids when in reality the kid was developing all kinds of social skills and translating for a kid who didn't understand what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. I just uh, recorded a podcast recently with Joanne Hill who talked about appreciative inquiry, about this idea of going in and looking at the positive, looking at what works yeah. instead of coming in in a deficit model as a critiquer exactly. of going into a school and saying, what is not going right? What could I change? If I were asked to do something different, what would I do instead of looking at it and going, what are they doing well? What can we learn? What students are doing? You know, who is succeeding? Let's talk to that person, like taking this salutogenic uh, instead of a pathogenic, uh, you know, approach to, to our schools and to our, to our learning. One of the things I think we've always told our undergrads what is, catch kids being good, mm -hmm. it's a whole lot easier to catch kids being good, creates a whole different environment to say something positive, catch kids be, being good, rather than always pick out the negative yeah. and reinforce the negative. And there are all kinds of things with that, but you know, some of the, the old bandies saying, uh, you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Yeah. Uh, but the notion of catching kids being good, I think is really important for teachers and very, very hard for beginning teaching. Yeah, absolutely. So I end all of these podcasts in this special series <laughs> about asking this last question. And you can take it anywhere you want, but I want to ask, why SEL in elementary schools? And Risto, that's a, a really great question and one that we've uh, wrestled with. And I think I'd add to that question is ultimately whose responsibility is it to teach SEL skills, uh, and it's something that we've had a lot of conversations about. 
I think what we can agree on, though, is the importance of social emotional learning for students. Right? We know, uh, kind of recapping what we've talked about, promoting SEL uh, requires uh, that we teach, we purposely teach, and we model those skills. It requires uh, that we provide opportunities for students to actually practice and hone those skills. Uh, and ultimately, we'd like to give students an opportunity to apply those skills in a variety of situations. And so if we think about the five SEL concepts and revisit those, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, uh, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making, these are all essential in everyday life. If you think about your day and to think about what you have on your agenda for the rest of the day, these are all things you're going to have to apply in your life every single day as, a, as an adult. And so um, as a result, we really believe that elementary schools is a particularly uh, great place. And we also think physical education is an ideal place and an ideal vehicle to practice those skills, right? And to get to the to the question about um, whose responsibility, um, we'd like to think and hope and believe that all of these things um, that we've been talking about are learned and practiced at home. And oftentimes they are, and I think that's important to note, but we also know that that may not always happen, right? And physical education provides a different context to, um, to really hone and apply those skills. Uh, so just like math and reading practice may not always happen at home, it needs to be reinforced at school. So we would argue uh, that it's not any individual uh, responsibility. It's a collective responsibility. But we do know that physical education provides a unique context uh, to really support what parents uh, and hopefully other teachers at the school um, are also doing and reinforcing. Uh, and kind of in closing here, just to, as we're in the business of guiding children in the process of becoming healthy and physically active for a lifetime, we also think that integrating social-emotional learning in the classroom, or more specifically in the gymnasium, can help prepare students for the future. Uh, and in the end, Missy and I, we have some similar, we've been working together a long time, and we have some similar ideas about our purpose. And really the way that we see it is that um, we're guided as educators uh, by the notion that education is about uh, developing good people as well as developing good learners. And we really see this intersection of SEL and skill themes uh, as, a, as a real ideal way to meet those goals. Miss anything to add? I'm going to add, yeah, I got one thing to add to that. I think for me, with that, with that is, it's not just about PE lending itself to the teaching of SEL skills. It's about who we are as teachers and what we believe is important and worth doing. And so we have the opportunity, but it's also, we've got a right environment to do it. By golly, it is also important to do it, and it, it's something that's worth doing. And it's not about compromising either physical education or social-emotional learning. It's about doing both and doing both well teaching to both, purposely teaching to both, and, and doing that well and reaping the rewards later. I think that's a great point to end on. Um, I really appreciate both of you coming on. Um, thank you, Missy, and thank you, Kevin. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Christo. Thank you, Christo, very much. It was fun. And so 
We have the book coming out July 1st. Uh, it's published through uh, Jones and Bartlett. You can find more information on this and you can see the other podcasts above and below uh, this episode. Um, so we have a couple different chapters highlighted by Kevin Richards and Paul Wright and then individual chapters highlighted throughout. So, um, and we highly recommend, obviously, if you want to see the lesson plans and stuff to, to get that book when it comes out. And uh, that's, all, that's all we have for this one. Thanks for listening.